Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. The chilling new original docuseries on Paramount+. Plus. Why did he kill his family? The answer lies across the ocean in a woman named Sylvie. She's a can model. Where desire leads to deception. I ended up spending twelve and $15,000 a day. It was addictive. I can't get you out. And obsession leads to murder. Who did this to your family? You can't really maintain a fantasy forever. Control-Alt-Desire, now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Welcome to the Fantasy Baseball Today podcast from CBS Sports. Oh, and first pitch crushing! Deep left field! This is Welcome Got a fantasy question? Email fantasybaseball at cbsi.com. Get ready to win your league. Where fantasy becomes reality. Now here's Frank, Scott, and Chris. What's up and welcome in to Fantasy Baseball today on Thursday, March 9th. Frank Stanfield joined by Scott White and Chris Towers. Today on the show, we've got a loaded one for you. Scott's Tout Wars recap. That is a 15-team 5x5 Roto Industry League. We'll be recapping that. My NL only labor team. We're going to recap that one as well. 12 team salary cap slash auction. And then later on, we'll have players we haven't talked enough about with a special guest here on the show. But guys, let's just jump right in because we have a lot to get to. Not a lot of time to do it. We'll start off with Scott's Tower Wars team. He was picking 15th overall. I've got the draft board pulled up for those watching us. Live on YouTube. I'm gonna, yep, you can. You see gotta Scott's. scroll left to right though, which is unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna be able to show all the picks, but people just want to see your yeah. team anyway, Scott. So that's all that matters. Let's uh, ah. let's first preview what this draft is. It's an industry league. It's been around for a long, long time. It's one of the longest-standing industry expert leagues out there. Tout Wars, 15-team mixed five by five roto with OBP instead of batting average. Standard roto lineups, two catchers, one of each infield spot. Middle infield, corner infield, five outfielders, one utility, and then nine pitcher spots with six reserves. Six, six reserves, Scott? I don't know if that's true. Five reserves? It is, uh, yes, six reserves because it's uh, 29 rounds. And if you happen to be viewing the video, uh, I, I want to point out real quick, Jansen Junk shows up there as a pick made in round four. That's not actually Jansen Junk. That is a placeholder for the pitcher version of Otani because Tau Wars splits Otani into two players. Well, yesterday I teased that both you and Chris drafted Fernando Tatis in your respective Tau Wars teams. Scott, you're picking 15th overall, and you went with the Padres stack. Fernando Tatis Jr. and Manny Machado at picks 15 and 16. Is that what you yep. were hoping for? Uh, and do you plan to play Tatis yes. at outfield, shortstop? What are you thinking? Oh, outfield. Because that those were the positions I wanted to fill in rounds one and two, outfield and third base. And um, I, I knew like third base was the most important of all because obviously it's a high priority for me in every draft this year, but especially 
a 15-team draft like this, and especially one that uses OBP instead of batting average. Because if it uses OBP in, in, instead of batting average, then that pushes Alex Bregman and Max Muncie up even more. You're, you're already inclined to reach for them after the stud third basemen are gone, but especially in that format. And sure enough, Alex Bregman went in round three and Max Muncie in round six. So I, I probably wouldn't have been able to get wrap my head around taking them at that point. It just wouldn't have happened. I had the choice of picking anywhere from 8th to 15th. I figured if I picked 8th, my only hope for a stud shortstop was to reach for Nolan Arenado, and I didn't want to reach for him that early. So I decided... Stud third baseman, because you said shortstop. Stud third baseman, yes. So I decided 15th gave me the best chance of pairing, uh, of getting one of those stud third baseman with my first two picks. And I hoped Tatis was who I could pair him with so that I would have that stud outfielder still. Obviously, the the seven that we talk about um, as, as surefire first-rounders would have already been gone by that point. Mike Trout probably would have been gone by that point, and sure enough, he was, since it's an OBP league. So Tatis was who I was hoping for to pair with any of those third basemen. I did go with Machado over Devers this time, in part just to diversify. The, rate, the margin between them is so thin, but in part because it is an OBP league. Machado walks a little more. Devers' biggest advantage is batting average, kind of neutralizes that advantage. Hopefully Machado will give me some steals, and he's in a better lineup. So I went Machado and Tatis there, and, uh, and that was kind of it for, for game planning for this <laughs> draft because as I've talked about, when you pick at the end, and especially when it's a league as big as this one, you can't anticipate too much what's going to make it back to you. you. I had to wait 28 picks before every pair of picks that I made. Uh, and, 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 you know, any time, like even once we were already made it through that, those first 14 picks and we're on the way back, I'm looking at players like, okay, th- maybe this guy will get to me. Maybe this guy will get to me. And I think one time the whole draft did the guy I hoped would get back to me actually make it to me. So I was kind of just taking who, whoever came to me and really uh, not, not sticking to my, like obviously not sticking to the tiers approach that I normally use when drafting because, again, you can't anticipate what's going to be there, and that's what the tier approach is. So it was really just about being comfortable with what's given to me, not reaching so much to fit a player into my prescribed plan. And I think I did a good job of that. I think most of my picks ended up being relative values uh i the the time i was most tempted to reach came early so um okay so my first my first two picks as you pointed out fernando tatis manny machado my third pick obviously these third and fourth picks were made back to back ozzy albies which I, i wasn't necessarily looking to go outfield third base second base in this in this uh particular draft Albie's value isn't as good in an OBP league and in a deeper league like this, I, I don't know that you need to treat second base like it's so scarce because it's, it's, it's a bottom heavy position. Uh, there's a lot of talent available later is what I'm saying. Uh, but it, you know, I, I was hoping like Kyle Schwarber would make it to me in round three. He didn't. So I went Albies cause that just was the best player available. I thought. And then I thought about going Corbin Carroll there because I really wanted to get that second outfielder. And since it's an OBP league, I pointed out the other day, I'm, I'm starting to feel more optimistic about his on-base ability specifically. It would have put me in a really good spot for stolen bases, really good spot for outfield. But it would have been a pretty big reach 
as the 46th overall pick. So instead, I decided to play it safe with Shane McClanahan. Uh, and, you know, it's it's hard to say how much that would have changed my draft if I went Carroll there instead of McClanahan. But with the draft being complete, I can say that outfield is my most concerning position. Uh, and, and maybe we could get into that more in a little bit. But, you know, obviously I'm counting on Fernando Tatis there. He's not going to be there for the first three weeks. And as things currently stand, I'm going to have to turn to the waiver wire for a replacement. I was surprised that you wound up with uh, Shane O'Mac with your pick here uh, at your pick, the first pick of round four, which would have been 46, and you took him over Corbin Carroll. And I think the way that the draft played out, the top pitchers available at your 5-6 turn were Zach Gallen, Tristan McKenzie, Robbie Ray. I think you did good. I know typically you like to wait on starting pitcher, but man, to get Shane O'Mac there at the 3-4 turn, just the way that all the pitchers started to go after that, I think you, you did a pretty good job with that, uh, winding up with him there. Right. And it's worth saying, 46 is probably around when Scott's taking his first pitcher. It's just right. because it's a 15-team league, that ends up being the first pick of the fourth round, where in the 12-team league, the first pick of the fourth round would be 37 overall. I mean, lately I've been taking my first pitcher more like it, beyond the top 60. Uh, I've, I've been pushing it back more and more, and I hoped to do it in this draft too, because I, you know, the deeper the league is, the scarcer hitting is going to be, and I, I think that is the between hitting and pitching. It's more important to fill hitting in the early rounds, and that becomes even more dire in, in the deeper the league is. So I, I'd hope to go at least four pitchers to start the draft, but again, Pitters. I just had to take what was given to me. And uh, with McClanahan still on the board, Carroll, it just seemed like too big of a reach. Now, when it came back to me, Luis Robert was there. So I did get that second outfielder, one with health concerns, which also isn't great for my lack of outfield depth. But, it, you know, even in an OBP league, you can't complain about Luis Roberts' seventy fifth overall. So I had yeah. a lot of picks like that where it's just like, uh, all right, if, if everyone else is going to pass on him, I guess I'll take him. And and so up and down the draft, I I see a lot of value there just from a pure ADP perspective, you know. But did it all come together to create the most balanced, well rounded team? Mostly, yes. Like in terms of category distribution, I, I think it did. And what helped with that was that three of my first five picks were contributors and steals, Tatis, Albies, and Robert. So I didn't have to really stretch at any point to to uh, address that, that category scarcity. I had a lot in the bag early on. Uh, what also helped with it is I had the presence of mind following that Robert pick in round five. I paired him with Rysel Iglesias, first pick of round six, which is probably the earliest I've drafted a closer this year. But I knew, you know, one of, one of my biggest problems in this league the past couple of years is just being too cavalier about saves and then having to cycle through a bunch of junky pitchers to help in that category. So as we've talked about in the relief pitcher preview and everything else, I want to get one of those nine that I feel really confident in, in them getting 30-plus saves, and Iglesias is among that group. And sure enough, before it got back to me, as it was as we we're going through those 28 picks in round six and seven, a man, uh, let's see, who all went? It was uh, 
Uh, hang on here. I got it right in my... I've got right it. up here. Okay, so Ryan Presley, Ryan Helsley, Felix Bautista, Clay Holmes, and Camilo Duvall all went before I had another chance to pick. So I would have been in a bad situation uh, at closer if I hadn't taken Rysel Iglesias there with the first pick of round six. So, so it helped that I addressed those two most stressful categories early enough that that, that kind of put me in a position where I could continue to take what was given to me rather than... Uh, having to reach to meet a specific need. So in, in terms of category distribution, I think it worked out well. Uh, you know, if, if I went a little lighter on power than I like early, that helped. It, it helped that uh, I was able to get Salvador Perez with uh, at the end of round seven, I think it was the 105th overall pick. Yep. So, you know, he's going to give you a lot more home runs and especially RBI than the average catcher will. Um, my second and third starting pitchers were Nestor Cortez and Chris Sale which is in a league this deep, not uncommon for me. Shane McClanahan's a better ace than I normally get. Uh, but I like that top of the rotation. Fine. Tony Gonsolin, who it does sound like he's going to start on begin the year on the IL now with that ankle injury. You know, there's no fracture or anything. It doesn't sound like it's going to be a long-term issue. And he slid all the way to 195th. So I got him as my number four starter. So my, I, I feel like my pitching staff for a 15-team league look, actually looks better than it normally does. But because I was taking what was given to me, there is that issue of I just kept getting screwed out of the the outfielders that I would have liked. So in round 11, uh, at the round 11-12 turn, I was gearing up to take large new back-to-back. And they were there, and they were there, and they were there. Scott, who was it? Because you getting excited to take them. Scott, you lagged for a second. Who was it? It was Lars Newbar. It was... it was Lars Newbar and Jordan Walker. Gotcha. I was, I was prepared to take them at 11, 12 turn. And, and they were there and there, and suddenly they weren't there anymore. And so who did I end up taking there? Oh, I went with a very boring combination of Hunter Renfro and Daniel Bard, which was fun. <laughs> but obviously, and, and I did get an outfield. Thankfully, like Hunter Renfro, it's hard to get excited about taking him. But gosh, if I didn't have him with what ended up, how the outfield ended up playing out, I would have been in a really uh, desperate situation for sure. And then the other instance of that happening was in round at around 1920 turn. I was geared up to take Garrett Mitchell and Jake Freely back to back. And again, it was the same thing. It looked like they were going to make it to me and then suddenly they were gone. And so I ended up taking, again, I took one, I took Trey Mancini, but I paired him with Craig Kimbrell. So, Mancini ended up being my fourth outfielder there to go along with Tatis, Luis Robert, and Hunter Renfro. My fifth outfielder is Alex Kirilov, who, of course, is no safe bet to stay healthy either. And those are the only outfielders I have on my team. So, uh, yeah, so I'm going to be turning to the waiver wire for at least one in Tatis's spot to begin the year. And, and there are some guys out there who are at least in line for regular bats. They might not be the greatest at bats, but you know, they, they won't be a zero for me, but that's, that's probably my biggest regret of the draft is that I wasn't able to build any, any outfield depth to speak of. Uh, and I'm just glad I got the ones I did when I did. Yeah. One thing I really liked Scott that you, you broke down there was how you hit all the categories pretty much consistently throughout your early round picks. So again, and I think that's a really good point for people who either play, I mean, even 12-team Roto, but any type of Roto or even deeper Roto leagues, 
when you build a balanced roster early, you don't have to reach for specific uh, categories throughout like the middle rounds of the draft. It, it, it gives you a little bit more freedom, more flexibility to kind of play with some picks and maybe do things differently or, or take certain players that you wanted because you didn't have to worry, yeah. oh, I need to get power or I need to get speed because, again, I think you did a really good job with your, uh, your first yeah. five picks or so just Boom. loading up as, um, on a lot of power and speed early. The one thing I think you're likely to be short on, and it's hard because it fluctuates a lot from year to year, I do think OBP is going to be an issue yeah. for you. I think this is a better batting average team, which obviously makes sense because you got Salvador Perez and Luis Robert and, and Ozzy Albies probably lower than they normally would in a, an average league because they're better right. in, in an OBP or in an average format. But like looking at your team, Tatis and Machado are good players in any format. They're going to be 360, 370 OBP guys, but like... Albies has been like 310 the last three seasons. Salvador Perez, obviously, always pretty mediocre in OBP. Luis Robert, I think the thing with him is like he's not going to walk a lot, but if he hits for the average that people expect him to, he's going to have a decent OBP. Like yeah. that's the one that actually, like, I think probably falls too far in this mm-hmm. format, him going to 75. And, and I, I'm probably a little lower on him maybe than, than most, but like him falling to 75 in an OBP league feels like. One, just a little bit of a misunderstanding of his skill set. Like, you don't have to walk a lot to have a useful OBP. You just have to have a good OBP. If he hits 290 like we think he can, he's going to have a fine OBP. Albies doesn't walk a lot and is probably going to be a pretty mediocre batting average player. So he's been a, a pretty big drain on OBP. But, you know, that... That I think is is the one weakness. But as far as like the counting stats, I, I think you're you're really solid everywhere. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's 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 hard to it's hard to manage OBP, I feel yes. like, because when you consider the players who are actually good at, at on base percentage relative to ones who are good at batting average, it's it's much less. And they tend to get pulled up a lot yep. in this draft. And I'm just not not willing to go there usually, mm-hmm. um, particularly since the the ones who are perceived to not excel at OBP slide so far. It's just hard for me to reconcile that. So I, I try, like like a you know it, it, it's a slight thing, but Machado over Devers in round one. I, I try to make sure at least with my very earliest picks that I yeah I get a little OBP. I, I would have you know it would have been great if I kind of got Aaron Judge in round one instead of Manny Machado yeah or, or, I, Roth, or Fernando Tatis who actually I, was. I would say like a Yandy Diaz who I ended up taking. I I have no interest in him in in my standard leagues, but. I did take him in Tau Wars, which is my league is also OBP. And that was Where one. I think to, he went 242 overall. You took Ezekiel Tovar just yeah. ahead of him after taking Cattell. You took Cattell Marte and Ezekiel Tovar. Yeah, I, I mean, like th- those were two of my favorite picks, too. So my favorite stretch yeah. of picks was the thir- beginning with that Gonsolin pick um, at the beginning of round 13. Uh, it was Gonsolin, Miguel Vargas. I got him in the 14th round of this league compared to 12th round in TGFBI. And, and he might actually be pretty good in OBP. He's, you know, he yeah. should be good for average and, and walked at a good rate in the minors too. Uh, Cattell Marte should be pretty good in OBP if he's healthy. Ezekiel Tovar, you know, I, I think he has a chance to be a five-category con- contributor in Colorado. And I, I probably needed a few more steals at that point. Um, and, and if he does, you know, hit for a good batting average, then the OBP... Should be pretty, regardless of the walk rate, should be uh, pretty solid. 
And um, look, Anthony Rendon could end up being that guy. Like if yeah, Anthony, I did Rendon, get Anthony is Rendon is fine, then in, in it's 18. probably not going to matter as much because he should be a a high OBP guy. It's like just three eighty to four hundred. Yeah, potentially. Yandy like Diaz is a like locked in three ninety four hundred yeah. OBP guy, and so yeah. that that's one that like if if you have a weakness, it's that. So and, and that Anthony Rendon pick in round eighteen to be my corner. I mean, part of it was just corner infield was starting to look pretty ugly. But mm. if it wasn't an OBP league, I I wouldn't have gone Anthony Rendon there. Yeah, it, it was it was partially just the hope that he would help address that that weakness of my team. And if he stays healthy, he should. Big if I know. Um, but otherwise, if it was a standard roto league, I probably would have just taken Garrett Mitchell there and not. Uh, crossed my fingers that he would make it to me with the next pair of picks. Uh, I did want to um, jump back to the point Frank made about um, uh, remind me what the point was you made Frank again. The, the when point you last that talked. the point that I made was giving yourself power and speed. Uh, t- yes. Taking power and speed early yeah. allows you flexibility throughout the middle rounds of the draft. Yes, and to illustrate this, I want to look back real quick at the way the same draft started last year. So uh, the winner was Mike Gianella of baseball prospectus. And he was a runaway winner. He won by like 13 points. His first 10 picks, if we could go through them real quick, Corbin Burns. Okay. That's fine. Max Scherzer in round two. Yeah, that's fine too. Whit Merrifield in round three. Ugh. Randy Orozarena in round four, okay. Joey Gallo in round five. <laughs> Big whiffs on two of his first five picks. Carlos Correa in round six. Okay, a little yeah, fine. Yeah. Christian Yelich in round seven, same thing, just kind of, mm. You Darvish in round eight, that's fine. Will Smith, the reliever, in round nine, big miss. Ryan Mountcastle in round 10, pretty bad pick. So three huge misses in his first 10 picks. No amazing picks. And then Ryan Malcastle was a pretty lousy pick as well. Okay, so that was his, the runaway winner. My first 10 picks last year, Vladimir Guerrero. Okay. Zach Wheeler. All right. Austin Riley in round three. Can't, good like, pick. Good. Sandy Alcantara in round four. Even Great better. Pick. Great pick. Jose Altuve in round five. Shoot, he's going in round two now. Great pick. Ryan Reynolds in round six. That's fine. Charlie Morton in round seven. Okay, that's the first kind of shaky one, but not a not as disastrous as some of Gianella's. Justin Verlander in round eight. Amazing. Adalberto Montesi in round nine. Okay, that's the one big miss. And then Shohei Otani, the pitcher, in round 10. So I had one miss in my first 10, one kind of miss in my first 10, and then three amazing value picks. I finished eighth of 15 teams. <laughs> And you know why? I, I, was, I was trying to look back through this, figure it out. I mean, part of it was just because I, I, I picks 11 through 29 were so bad. I had like one decent player there. But part of it is because as great as those picks were, not many steals to speak of and certainly no saves. Yeah. So I wasted so many at-bats on crappy hitters who I thought might get me steals like Jorge Mateo. And so many innings on crappy pitchers who I thought get, might get me saves, like Tanner Scott, that I undermined a lot of my strengths there. And I, I actually had like somewhat similar issues in my Tower's League, where I, I finished dead last in stolen bases, which 
it's actually like not that big of a problem because the team that won finished third. So like, you know, you can still do well. You're going to be bad at something, but yeah, I had somewhat similar uh, outcomes. So like, rather than suffer through that again, and I, and I just, I hate, I hate doing this because like, you know, you, you, you think better players means better team, right? Like it, it's just, you know, certainly in a points league, that would be the case, but because there, there are those, those real specialized skills that are weighed evenly to all the others in a Roto League. Addressing them early with players who definitely deserve to be in your starting lineup, but they happen to contribute saves or steals and then not having to, you know, not, not having to just like waste lineup spots chasing those categories. I, I think, especially for a Roto League this deep, I, I think it's a better way to build it. And... So hopefully I won't have that same problem. My problem this year is just going to be staying healthy. I mean, I, I talked about Luis Robert and um, Fernando Tatis not being available at the start of the year. Uh, Alex Kirilov having health issues, Anthony Rendon, I mean, even Carlos Correa. And, and then beyond that, some of my upside picks later, guys, we already know are going to be on the IL like like Lance McCullers and, and Trevor Story. There is an actual IL in this league, unlike TGFPI, which helps a heck of a lot. And I wouldn't have taken Trevor Story in TGFPI. There's but. unlimited IL spots too, so you can take advantage of yes. that. So yeah. Love it. Yeah. So I I I I will be I won't have to like, oh, do I drop this guy who could be a big help later on so that I don't take a zero in my lineup? Like that's not going to be a consideration, thankfully. Uh, because I could just put him on the IL, pick up somebody who takes place. But we are entering, you know, one of the problems I had last year with that great start and still finishing eighth. <laughs> Going to talk about the juice ball era again. So the 15-team Roto League is something fairly new. Like, I didn't play in a 15-team Roto League until we were the juice ball era, like when it was first getting started. So basically my whole time playing in that format has coincided with the juice ball era. I don't have much experience with it before that. And since the main change with the juice ball era was... Uh, wider distribution of home runs, deepening the hitter ranks overall. I think um, it was easy to approach it, approach the late picks, like really selling out for upside. And if it didn't work out, you know, there are a lot of redundancies at hitter and you could fill in the gaps with a boring player and, and be fine. But now we're on the other side of that. And it might make more sense, you know, just again, comparing my team to GNLs last year. Um, it might make more sense to treat a 15-team Roto League much like an AL and NL only league where the hitting is so scarce that you can't, you, you can't afford to miss that much. And, yeah. and so, you know, if you're pursuing upside too hard, even if it's later in the draft, uh, you're going to end up, you're, you're going to have a hard time keeping up in those counting stats. And, and this actually played out with my team last year. I was the number two team in home runs. I was the number four team in stolen bases but I was fourth to last in RBI and right in the middle and run scored. Like it, that doesn't feel like it should happen, but you know, a lot of my, um, a lot of my lineup spots were going to, to hitters who just didn't have a very high floor uh, for all those great options I got early. So um, even though I went pretty heavy on upside late in this one, uh, I was conscientious of getting, Players who I knew would be in the lineup every day if they were healthy, like Cattell Marte, like Ezekiel Tovar, like Trey Mancini, 
Um, I made even more of an emphasis than that. Um, put even more emphasis on that in TGFBI, but uh, you know, and, and I was still able to get some upside plays late. But you you kind of have to you kind of have to keep feeding the the uh, counting stats while you still can. I think in leagues this deep. Yeah, and I think that's a credit to what Mike Ginella did last year. I know he wound up with a lot of players from rounds eleven through twenty nine, which were probably viewed as just kind of boring, safe guys. Maybe they don't have crazy upside, but they played a lot. I know you highlighted some of those on Twitter, Scott, and they they gave you, it doesn't even have to be excess value. They just need to give you value. You know, they need to pay off mm-hmm. their spots. And I think, again, that's where the comparison between a deeper mixed league and an ALNL only comes in, where you just kind of want some of those, not all your picks, but you want some. You want some boring guys that are just going to give you plate appearances and help build up those counting stats. So something to keep in yep. mind if you play in deeper leagues, but Scott's right, you play 10 and 12 team leagues, you really want to swing for the fences in those middle and late round picks. Let's take a break, and when we get back, we'll hit some news and notes and talk a little bit about my NL-only labor team here on Fantasy Baseball Today. Jeremy Renner returns to Paramount Plus for a brand new season of the original hit series, Mayor of Kingstown. My job is to create a balance, avoid a war. From executive producer Taylor Sheridan, co-creator of Yellowstone. There's some new players in town, and they brought the flag. And Antoine Fuqua, director of Training Day. I know it's always been a war zone, Mike, but this is next level. The mayor is back in business. Are you warning me? You're going to find out. Mayor of Kingstown, new season streaming June 2nd, exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Let's go! It's the most all-star studded challenge ever. And this time, it's every competitor for themselves. Best challenge ever! The Challenge All-Stars. New season now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Go to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Terms apply. Welcome back into Fantasy Baseball Today. Let's quickly run through some news and notes. Uh, and we will start with... Andrew Painter has not been told surgery is needed on his ailing right elbow. Sounds like he'll need some time to heal, however, which means Bailey Falter is the favorite for the Phillies' fifth starter job, which we expected on yesterday's podcast. Stalling Marte is set to make his spring debut on Friday. Marte required surgery in November to address separated tendons on both sides of his groin, but he's made steady progress and should be ready for opening day. Jacob deGrom could make his Cactus League debut as soon as Monday. He's been working his way back from left side tightness. Joe Musgrove threw on flat ground Wednesday, but did not land on his left foot. So both feet were just planted where he was throwing. I guess it was more just like a you know, keep your arm loose type of exercise. He, he was not wearing a walking boot today, I think, That's for the good. first time since the, the injury. Uh, yeah, hey, positive steps. We'll, we'll take that with uh, with Joe Musgrove. Felix Bautista is on track to throw live batting practice next week. He's been rehabbing both a shoulder, uh, both shoulder and knee issues. And as long as he could work his way into one or two spring training games, which he hasn't done yet, but if he does that, then he should be good to go for opening day. Tony Gonsolin's left ankle is still swollen, but x-rays revealed there was no fracture. Dave Roberts said he, quote, doesn't feel good about Gonsolin being ready for opening day which Scott mentioned earlier, and I guess that would mean one of Michael Grove or Ryan Pepio is in the rotation to start. Do you guys have a lean on one of those guys, or which way do you think the Dodgers are going? I mean, I'd rather be Pepio because there's actually some upside there, and I think he's looked pretty good this spring, if if I'm remembering my box score review correctly. But I don't know which way they're leaning, and I don't imagine it'd be for long anyway. All right. 
Oswald Peraza is expected to return to game action Thursday. He tweaked something in his lower left leg last week, but seems to be okay. Justin Turner will probably be out two weeks after getting hit in the face with a pitch. He needs 16 stitches on Monday. Opening day could be in doubt for Justin Turner. Leody Tavares is going to miss a couple of weeks with a left ob- within a, a left oblique strain and won't be ready for opening day. The team has already ruled out prospect Evan Carter making the team, so he will start in the minors. And let me quickly pull up the Texas Rangers roster resource page. I don't think that there will be much value with whoever fills in, but you never know. Uh, all right, so... Well, actually, yeah, Bubba Thompson. If you play Yeah, in- Bubba Thompson would be the... You play in a deeper categories league. I mean, that dude is fast. So, like, he's he's going to steal some bases. Definitely a name to pay attention to uh, in deeper category leagues. Bubba Thompson filling in in center field for Leody Tavares. Pirates prospect Tamar Johnson will miss six weeks with a strained right hamstring and just a few performances of note. Scott McGuff walked one but struck out three. Who? Who's Scott McGuff? That's spelled M-C-G-O-U-G-H. He's part of the... Very large Diamondbacks bullpen by committee. We don't really know what's going on there. Uh, But he struck out three in his relief appearance Wednesday. He's thrown four scoreless innings so far this spring. And I kind of feel like he's going to get the first save off for the Diamondbacks. I don't think anyone knows for sure. He had 69 saves over the past two seasons in Japan. And good thing it's spring training. Get it out of the way now. Dylan Cease. Did you guys see this line here? Bad. He was charged with 11 earned runs, seven hits, four walks in less than an inning of work in his spring training outing on Wednesday. So, I mean, my make it up for all those unearned runs last year. I thought the correction. I thought the same exact one. I thought the same exact thing, Scott. Like, it all came on March 8th. Sounds, sounds like a bus candidate to me. Oh, there you go. This is why spring training matters. No, it's just kidding, obviously. Uh, Michael Massey hit a grand slam, uh, and he stole a base. So spring training sock in the shoe, Scotty. We'll take that. Uh, Massey, yeah. Massey already has three home runs in the spring, though I believe he fouled the ball off of his foot, and then he left the game. So hopefully everything's all right. Hey, but By the way, this, yeah. this sock in a shoe thing is gaining traction. Have you noticed? It sure I, is. I've seen people making reference to it. It is. W- without making reference to us. Like it's just part of the baseball vernacular. Let's and, go. Uh, I got to say, like a little credit for that one. Hey. I was denied credit on John Means business. <laughs> that became a whole meme that I think I started, but like nobody wanted to give me credit for that. I think I, I, think I need a little... A little credit for the old suck in a shoe. I'll give you credit for it, Scotty. I know uh, John Legesa on Twitter, uh, he tagged you in a tweet saying that he he believed you were the one that that originated the sock in a shoe. That's for a home run and a steal. Home run and a steal in the same game. I tried to go with sweet and savory for a while, but people were not having it. So uh, we quickly (laughs) ditched that. Before we get into my NL Labor team, we'll we'll just quickly talk about that. CBS Sports Fantasy Baseball Commissioner lets you run your league your way with endless ways to customize your scoring, rosters, schedule, and more. With CBS Sports Commissioner, you can cut out the loopholes and arguments and play exactly how your league wants to. My longest-running keeper league... Scott White Dynasty League, they're both played on CBS and they run seamlessly. You can set up custom rules, roto, head-to-head points, or categories, salary cap or snake draft, keepers, contracts, draft pick trading, and multiple matchups per period. The league history is unlike any other fantasy site with a record book, all-time standings, year-by-year results, 
and more. So step up to the big leagues this season. Visit cbssports.com slash FBT to get a special offer when you start a new commissioner league today. Again, that's cbssports.com slash FBT. Let's take a look quickly at my NL only labor salary cap draft that I was a part of, salary cap, also known as auction draft. First and foremost, doing an auction in person, fantasy baseball auction, is the best. It There is nothing better than that in fantasy. It is so fun. They're bidding wars, poker faces, there's egos, there's cadence in terms of bidding. There's so many different strategies. If you have the possibility to do a salary cap auction draft in person, please do it because it is fantastic and I absolutely love it. 12-team league, $260 budget. This was also a standard standard Roto lineups with batting average instead of OBP. Again, if you're watching us live on YouTube, I've got the uh, draft board up on so, the screen so, here. So the standard batting average, yeah, not OBP. Okay, yeah, just yeah. making sure you... I think that's what I said. Batting average instead you, of... You OBP. did. You did. Yeah. And there's a unique roster rule here with labor that I just quickly need to mention. You can't take a player out of your starting lineup unless they either wind up on the IL, they get demoted to the minors, or you drop them. So if a player is active, you basically need to keep that player in your lineup. And look, in an AL or NL only league, the waiver wire is going to be pretty awful. So once the season starts, I can't just take any of my bench players and put them in for somebody in my lineup. I can't just make regular weekly transactions unless a player in my lineup either gets hurt, demoted, or I drop that player. So, And that, that makes drafting Fernando Tatis kind of awkward. Yes. I mean, it, that's why you'll see on this draft board here for those watching, there are a lot of either hurt players currently or minor leaguers that were drafted. And that's strategically because it allows you more flexibility within your your transactions. You can put players in and out of your lineup then by, you know, once the season starts, player goes in the IL, all right, you take them out, put them on your IL spot, and then you could put someone in your lineup. So there's a strategy factor to that, and I kind of wish I wound up with someone who was on the IL to start the season, but... So when Fernando Tatis comes back, you need to hope somebody else is hurt or demoted, right? Or Or you just have to have him in your lineup the first two weeks. No, yeah, that's exactly it. Chris is right, because... I mean, I guess I should have asked what happens with suspension, but I would imagine that that probably doesn't They're on work. the roster. Yeah, right. yeah. So you probably it, just so got to... It, it applies the other way, too. It's not just, um, this is your only opportunity to remove someone, but this is your only opportunity to insert a new someone, too. My general strategy was to not spend more than $30 on any player, uh, wind up with yep. a 65%, 35% split, a hitter-pitcher split in terms of my uh, my budget and draft relatively boring, high-floor players who are going to play. Scott, you know this because you do the AL and NL only drafts on CBS every year. Played appearances and innings are key. Playing time matters immensely in a format like that. So before I reveal my team, Scott, what did you think of my general strategy going in? Yeah, no, that's that's how I try to approach AL and NL only leagues too, and that's why I kind of made that... um that comparison to a 15-team Roto League where you m- I might have to treat them more similarly now with hitter being scarcer. Uh, but I, I didn't always do it that way. And I came to the, to realize, if, you know, once I came to realize a few years ago just how important it was to have playing time in your lineup, even if it's pretty blah playing time. Um, once I made that adjustment, which meant... You know, in the salary cap draft, not 
not spending as much on the high dollar players because you don't want low dollar players. Low dollar players in an ALNL only league are just probably going to be ones who aren't playing. Right. Uh, so I, I made that same adjustment you did. Generally speaking, I don't spend more than thirty dollars on any player. I might go thirty one, thirty two on somebody, but you know, it's a, it's a loose rule. Certainly not, you know, going forty five, fifty on anybody. And once I made that adjustment, I started doing a lot better in these leagues. Like I, I, I think AL only leagues are the ones I'm consistently good at these days, which is <laughs> hard to do because obviously there's more. Anytime somebody gets injured in a league this deep. It's a disaster. So it, it, you'd think it'd be more vulnerable to luck, and it'd be harder to be consistent at it. But that, you know, that what you're saying, uh, really distributing the dollars more evenly, makes a lot of sense. And I mostly accomplished my goals. I did have one mishap within the draft, which caused me to miss out on a few hitter targets, specifically at third base and my second catcher spot. So I wound up spending 62% on hitting, 38% on pitching. Came up a little bit short there. Brace yourselves. For those listening or watching, if you do not play in AL or NL only, this is going to sound <laughs> awful. Here's my team. Sean Murphy, Tucker Barnhart at catcher. That's right, Tucker Barnhart. Reese Hoskins, Gene Segura, Francisco Lindor, Evan Longoria in the infield, CJ Abrams at middle, G-Man Choi at corner, and then in the outfield, I've got Christian Yelich, Lars Newbar, Charlie Blackman, Andrew McCutcheon, Mark Canna, and then Nelson Cruz at utility. Chris, you're up, man. Rip me apart. What do you think? Mostly boring guys, but I got I got my two upside plays in Lars Newbar and CJ Abrams. Yeah, no, I, I think it's fine because you know going through it, it's hard to have everyday players in every spot in an NL only or AL only league, frankly. And I think you pretty much do outside of Evan Longoria and G-Man Choi probably, and then Nelson Cruz, we don't quite know, but I don't think he's going to play every day. So yeah, I think in that regard, well, and Mark Hanna. So you start adding up, but no, I, I think for the most part, it's a, it's a good balance of getting a couple upside guys, getting mostly dependable starters. And like Christian Yelich is someone that I think sort of gets viewed as a, a boring low upside player, but I do still think because he's got pretty good plate discipline, the athletic skills are still pretty good and he hit the ball really hard last season. So I do think there is room for a, not a return to being a 50 homer, 30 pace guy like he was at his best. But like if Christian Yelich hits 25 home runs this season, it wouldn't shock me. And that would make your team a lot better. Yeah. I mean, basically I had players at each position. I had a budget for each position. So I knew, for example, my outfield one, I was going to spend 18 to $20 and it was mm -hmm. uh, Christian Yelich, Ian Happ and Chris Bryant. And I think Bryant actually went for 17. So he actually turned out being a really good buy, but I wanted players with similar skill sets at each position and then wind up with one of those players. So I give myself different options within the draft if someone's going cheaper, so on and so forth. So that was my plan. And for the most part, I really did stick to it. On the pitching side, my, my starters were Brandon Woodruff, Nick Lodolo, Carlos Carrasco, Ross Stripling, Hayden Wesneski, and Taiwan Walker. My relievers, I wanted one surefire closer. I spent up for Devin Williams, who's $21. And then I've got Scott McGuff, that name again, and Joe Mantz applies. So uh, each of those Diamondbacks relievers were $1 each. If they combine for Look, you, if they combine for 10 to 15 saves, I'm ecstatic, Chris. That's all I need. You from, got like 30% of the potential closers for the Diamondbacks. 
<laughs> yeah, I took I took Kevin Ginkle in the reserve rounds too. So I actually <laughs> woke up. I wound up with the holy trinity of uh, Arizona Diamondbacks relievers. Uh, Scott, what do you what do you think overall about the uh, the pitching staff here? And then any thoughts on the hitters? Well, I I'm, I can mostly just compare it to the own my own NL only team I put together. Same, you know, salary cap league, twelve teams, all that. Yeah. Um, and, and there are a lot of similarities. I wish you had a better. Uh, third baseman or corner infielder because you got yep. Evan Longoria and G-Man Choi in those spots and like if one of those was somebody who I thought could be more than just there uh, I'd feel a lot better about your team I don't know that I would have gone 18 on Sean Murphy I feel like catchers aren't a great investment in leagues this deep because they're not for, for the amount of money you pay, the run in RBI production won't be the same as if you devoted those dollars to another position. And in my own NL only league, I didn't go for a true ace like Brandon Will- Brandon Woodruff because I think the mid-tier is deep enough to compete in the pitching categories in this league. So I would have taken some of those dollars from Woodruff, the 28th there, some of those dollars from Sean Murphy, the 18 there, and probably paid for another corner infielder and probably another outfielder too. But... Overall, I think uh, I think we're closer to the same mindset than not. Yep, yep. I, I agree completely. Third base and corner, those are not the guys that I had written down. That was when my like mid-draft uh, issue was going on, so that's why it kind of messed things up for me. But um, I did wind up with someone in reserve, Scott, who you also drafted, who could turn out to be a big win, specifically for third base and corner. Christian Encarnacion Strand of the Cincinnati Reds. This guy is off to an amazing start in in spring training. 12 for 20, three homers, 10 RBI, a 1,700 OPS. Obviously, it's a super small sample. I didn't think there was any chance, Scott, of him making the opening day roster. I would say that chance is at least 50% now. What what are your thoughts on Encarnacion Strand? So C. Trent Rosecrans, who covers the Reds for The Athletic and has covered them for a long time for different publications. Um, he had an article about this in The Athletic the other day. And um, they were talking about potential replacements for Joey Votto, who d- doesn't look like he's going to be ready for the start of the year. And Bell acknowledged that Encarnacion Strand is is part of that. You know, they, he, he hasn't spent a lot of time at double A yet. Obviously put up huge numbers in the minors, putting huge, huge numbers this spring, but just he hasn't gotten a lot of upper level experience and, and they're taking that into account. But this is the same organization, the same leadership uh, that, you know, spring training a couple years ago, Jonathan India didn't look like he was in the discussion and then suddenly he was the opening day second baseman. So Bell's saying that Encarnacion Strand could... Uh, f- following those footsteps and um i took him late in towers he was one of those upside picks i took late i took him late in tgfbi too it's one of my last couple picks i think he is definitely a player who is gaining traction this spring he's eligible at third base everywhere which is great and considerable power some plate discipline questions but considerable power all right well that's my nl only labor team Good luck to me because I haven't played in a mono league for a while. But again, the the live in-person auction, I mean, that is just fantastic. So I highly recommend it. Let's take one more break here. And when we return, we'll have a special guest here on Fantasy Baseball Today. Hello, everyone. It's Mike Richards here. You might have seen me on CBS working on their Champions League coverage over the last couple of years. I wanted to tell you about an exciting new podcast that I've been working on. It's called The Rest is Football. 
It's me, alongside Gary Lineker and Alan Shearer, two absolute legends of the game. The show combines topical debate from the world of soccer along with outrageous tales from our careers. And I mean, outrageous. Just search The Rest is Football wherever you get your podcasts. All the best from Big Beats. This is Tony Kornheiser's show. I'm Tony. We expected someone else. So what exactly is the show about? Hmm, I don't know. It's a sports show nominally. Football's over, but we're finally at a point where things matter in college basketball and baseball season is on deck. Greatest three words in the English language, pitchers and catchers. We have some of the best voices come on and explain what matters or what makes an upset, like Ryan does, (laughs) nine over eight. No, that's not an upset. No, yeah, it is, Bob. And if you're lucky, I might just tell you about my search for discounted sleep pants or my worries about what my dog just ate. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. So every September, our friends from the Fantasy Football Today crew put on their Draftathon event. It is a six-hour live stream giving out fantasy football advice and raising money for St. Jude's Children's Hospital. Last year, they auctioned off a bunch of fun experiences, and, and one of them was a guest experience, a guest appearance on this podcast. Please welcome in the other winner of that contest. He is Neil Shaw. Welcome to the show, Neil. What's going on, man? Hey guys, good evening. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Excited for it. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us a little bit about yourself, what types of fantasy baseball leagues you play in, maybe what team you root for, all that fun stuff. Yeah, I've been doing, you know, like rotisserie going back to the 80s. I'm almost 50 years old. So I've been playing since, you know, I was uh, probably 12, 13 years old. And um, I'm a lifelong Yankee fan. I've yeah. Over 40 years. Uh, so uh, Donnie Baseball was my guy growing up. Um and, but I've been with uh, in a league for over 20 years now with really close friends from from growing up since, you know, elementary school friends, uh, middle school friends. And um, it's an auction, uh, 12 team, uh, $260 uh, uh, draft. It's a, we have three, we have keepers. You're allowed uh, five keepers for up to three years. And um, at some point before we close, I do want to ask you a keeper question about my team. Get your perspective on that. But um, yeah, no, it's a very competitive league, really good guys, but but very competitive league and a lot of fun. All right. Well, we're interested to get your perspective. And OG here playing fantasy since the 1980s. Yeah. Uh, you got any like fun uh, newspapers and, and keep stats, you know, literally, but with pencil and paper every day. Yeah. And you can't and even imagine. Do you have yeah. any like fun, uh, fun traditions? Because I'm in a league that's been I've been in this league for three seasons now. This is going to be my third. But the league itself has been running since the 80s. Yeah. And they've awesome. got a tradition of like the winner. We, we do uh Peter Luger's steakhouse night oh, uh, at the end of the year in like November. And this is November in, in Brooklyn. So it's, you know, usually in the forties, the person who wins the league, everybody at the draft party dunks uh, bottles of Yoohoo, the, the <laughs> chocolate. I don't think there's actually any milk in that, but you know, the chocolate flavored drink. The chocolate drink, right. Uh, so that, that's our, our fun, uh, so I like that's what that league I want to come in second, you know, like that's right. my goal. I don't I don't actually want to win that league. You win a lot of money for winning it, but I'm good with second. Second gets a decent amount of money, too. Yeah. So, no. Um, and again, I've been listening to you guys uh, you know, for, for several years now. I listen on a regular basis and it's just very enjoyable for me. It's it's very relaxing. And, and I, I'm, a, I'm a baseball nerd. So um, I, I love the stuff you guys talk about. My wife, not so much, but, but she tolerates <laughs> it. But yeah. Yeah, right. and I appreciate you bringing up the the tracking stats and pen and paper and newspapers and box scores. Yeah. People don't know this. The way I got into fantasy was 
my dad was playing back in the 90s when he would have to like mail in his lineups and <laughs> you got to call people on the phone to make trades and all that kind of fun stuff. Right, exactly. And, exactly. And that's how I actually I became friends with these guys. I would be on the phone for hours at a time, you know, back when we were yeah. like seventh and eighth grade. And that's how we became lifelong friends. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 I, and yeah. how I got exposure was he let me name the team. I would name the fantasy baseball team and then my dad would do all the work. So that's basically how I got introduced to it. And and it was a ton of fun, obviously, to this day. So what Neil wanted to do is he has some players that either, you know, we haven't talked enough about or players that he has a different perspective on. So we'll we'll try and run through as many of these as possible. Uh, and Neil, I want you to start with the hitting sleepers that you provided yeah. me outside of the top 300. Who are those guys that you're looking at? Yeah, no, thanks. And, and I tried to come up with guys who have some track record where there's a reason to believe and, and there's a change that's happened. That's a reason to believe. So the first guy is Adam Duvall, who's, you know, I think number 400 rank in, in CBS sports. And obviously he's a guy who in 2021 had 38 homers, led the national league in 2020, 2019, he was an 800, 850 to almost 900 OPS guy. And last year was obviously a very much down season for him. What excites me though, is he moved to uh, Fenway, um, obviously that's a stadium built, I think for his swing as a, as a fly ball hitter, or as a dead pole hitter, obviously he's a righty, he's a gold glove type fielder. So he'll be playing center field, I think on a regular basis. And, you know, in a small sample size at Fenway, only 18 at bats career, he has four homers, um, and like a, a 1400 OPS. So I think he's a guy, again, he's out, he's, he's in the 400 ranking, so you can get him for free. And I think he's a, 30 plus home run candidate on playing full time uh, again for the Red Sox and what I think is a very good lineup actually. So that's the first one. Uh, the second one is um, Jared Walsh, who's again, uh, obviously first base for the angels ranked uh, 326. So again, so outside of the 300 and here, so his first full month as a major leaguer was in September, 2020, September, 2020. And and then this first three months of 2021, he was basically an all-star. So in those first four full months, I, I added it up. He had 29 homers and 84 RBIs, okay, in his first four full months as a pro. However, going back to 2019, he has this thoracic outlet syndrome issue. And that reared its head in the second half of 2021. So his second half numbers of 21 were down, and 2022 was a disaster, uh, for him. Ultimately, he had to have surgery on that. And he basically missed the rest of the season last year. He's come back. And, and this is an issue that affects basically, you know, um, your collarbone, you know, down to your ribs, uh, causes uh, shoulder and neck pain and numbness. So it's just really hard, obviously, to play. And um, but now he's had surgery on it. He says he's 100 percent healthy. Obviously, he's a starting first baseman for the Angels. And again, I think a really good lineup. So you know, and he's a guy who has a track record. Um, so if he's healthy now, I think he's a potential big uh, contributor at first base, who again is not even being drafted. Um, and then the third one uh, is Brandon Belt, who again, uh, ranked outside of the top 300. Obviously in 2020, 2021, you know, over the course of those two seasons, 475 at bats, he had 38 homers and a thousand OPS. So it's not that far removed. And he's another one who in 2022, he's had chronic knee issues. It pretty much saddled him all year last year, his power completely. He's talked about that to the point that he ultimately had season ending uh, in, uh, surgery uh, to repair his knee. He says he's 100%. He obviously signed with the Blue Jays. 
and and it's going to segue into my next idea that I want to talk about. But the Blue Jays have brought their obviously uh, outfield in, especially uh, for in the right center field power sort of gap uh, or alley. Okay, obviously he's a left-handed hitter, so it's perfectly suited for him. They brought their fences in from 375 to 359, and I looked this up. I think that is actually the shortest porch in right center field in all Major League Baseball. So I think that is totally suited for a left-handed power hitter. And now that he's healthy, I think he's a guy who um, can, again, be a 30 home run hitter as basically, you know, a, a strong side or a potentially full-time DH um, or sub, subbing in a little bit of first base for the Blue Jays. So I'm, he's another guy who I'm really excited about. It's got three names there. Adam Duvall now with the Red Sox. Jared Walsh coming back from thoracic outlet syndrome. And Brandon Belt now with the Blue Jays. Do you have any interest in any of these three guys, obviously in deeper leagues. I have talked about Duvall some as a deep sleeper for, for, um, for the reasons Neil mentioned. I mean, he, he, the home runs he hits are high home runs to the pole side. And, um, yeah, I mean, you, you can't ask for a better venue for Duvall than, than Fenway. Now, I, I mean, home runs are basically all he can provide if he's going to provide anything, but home runs are getting pretty hard to find at that stage of the draft. So I think, I think that's a good call there. There have been times when I've gotten excited about Brandon belt. He hasn't debuted yet this spring coming off knee surgery. It doesn't sound like it's really an issue, but you know, it's become kind of this out of sight, out of mind thing. Did he, um, I closed the window. Did he, do you, do you have the tout wars draft up Frank Did Brandon belt get taken there? Cause that's somebody who, if, you know, if he is playing even semi-regularly in addition to the power, yeah. that, that's an OBP mm-hmm. source. Yeah. That's something he's always excelled at. So that might be, can't use him in the outfield, unfortunately, but that might be somebody I'm looking to pick up if he didn't get taken. All right, Neil, let's get into your bold predictions. Yeah. You sent me two names yeah. here, one of them including another left-handed Blue Jays hitter. Yeah, exactly, who exactly. So I'm high on this point. I think a fantasy winner is going to be Dalton Varshow. Obviously, he's well-known and, you know, et cetera, but... I'm making a case that I think he could be a league winner, essentially. And the reason for that is the point I mentioned about uh, Toronto and, and, and that power alley in, in, in right center field. But also, if you look at his numbers, he's going to be playing full-time outfield. If you look at his numbers, he's a significantly better hitter as an outfielder than as a catcher, going back to his time in, in, uh, in Arizona. Okay, Not only that, if you look at late last season, basically he had very little power at catcher, didn't run at catcher. In September last season, obviously playing full-time outfield, he had nine homers, eight stolen bases. Okay, he's got uh, very high, obviously great speed. So I think he's a guy who is going to, as a full-time outfielder, be a 30-30 player um, and and obviously with catcher eligibility. And I think that'll be the first time ever uh, that you've had a catcher uh, as a 30-30 player, uh, to my knowledge. So that's one reason I'm very excited. I mean, we all know that Varsho is a great player, but I think um, right now he's ranked, I think, in the 50s and the number two catcher. But I think he could be a, uh, a stellar, stellar uh, player this season. So I'm, I'm excited about did, him. Did you reply uh, to my survey saying no. Varsho could be a 30-30 catcher? Okay. Cause okay. Yeah. Somebody else said that, uh, my survey I, on Twitter, that it, the results I'm going to write about. Tomorrow, yeah, but no, I thought Pudge got there. He didn't. He had 35-25. So no, just okay. just yeah. came up short. Well, yeah. uh, Real Muto was only the second 2020 catcher ever following yeah. that that year that Pudge won MVP. Yep. Yeah. 
the the other one I was uh, going to say is um, obviously Bobby Witt, who's uh, you know ranked in the twenties, et cetera. I'm going to make a case. I think Witt could be a top five player this year, and and the argument I'm going to make is obviously Witt last year as a 21 year old, he basically only had one season in pro baseball prior to that. And and that was in double A and triple A. He played about 125 games. So you throw out the first month because, you know, Mike Trout's first month as a major leaguer, he had a 600 OPS, right? So you're just getting your feet wet. A lot of pressure on him, you know, standing ovation at first at bat in Kansas city. And, the next four months, he basically averaged five homers a month and about five to six steals a month the next four months. And then in September, I just think he got worn out. He had yeah. never played that many games. Uh, he, you know, he's learning you know, shortstop and, and third base at the big league level, flop, flip, flipping back and forth. So this offseason, he added about eight pounds of muscle. And I think the comp, and now he's entering his, his um, age 23 season, I think the comp to him is Trey Turner. Uh, and if you look at Trey Turner, his age 22 season and then his age 23 season, they have very similar body types. They obviously have elite, you know, sprint speed. Uh, Witt actually has better, you know, stat cast numbers even at this age than Trey Turner. So I think, and we know he's an elite player, but I'm just making a point that I think he has a chance to be a, you know, 30 homer, 25 to 30 homer, 35 to 40 steal guy at third base uh, with third base eligibility. And um, I think that would make him potentially a top five player in fantasy this year. Chris, I don't think we have to squint too hard to see those counting stats coming to fruition, right? 25 plus home runs, 40 steals. Bobby Witt, in terms of sprint speed, one of the fastest players in the game, Mm -hmm. added some muscle in the offseason. So yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if he gets to mid-20s. I think maybe the biggest issue I have with Witt is where does the batting average wind up? Obviously, mm-hmm. he hit around 250 last year. It's his first season. He could he could and should take a ne- the next step this year. But I think that's probably my biggest question mark is the batting average for Bobby Witt. Yeah, again, my point is he, he was he was only 22 years old. And, and again, mm-hmm. he first year in the bigs. And if you look at most guys, I mean, that that's still a stellar first season as a, as a player. So I would expect him to improve pretty much across the board uh, with one-year experience now. Yeah, the thing with Bobby Witt that I struggle with is like the plate discipline is not good, right? He strikes out actually not that much, 21.4%. He doesn't walk at all. So he doesn't swing and miss all that much. So it's for me, it's more about like making better swing decisions, you know, chasing a little less, swinging at pitches to hit a little more. Um, If he can make those changes, then I do think you're just going to see the whole game grow, right? It's not just a strikeout walk thing. That's the kind of thing where picking better pitches to swing at means you're going to, in theory, make better contact. You're going to have a better batting average. I do think there's definitely, he's a player who, whatever, if there's growth, it's likely to be exponential, right? It's likely to be a situation where if Bobby Wett gets a little bit better at a couple of things, he's going to get a lot better at everything. Right. Because he's such a talented player that like that's why I, I wrote my, my piece today. The I think I called it the players I have to draft at least once. And Bobby Witt wasn't on that list. He probably should have been because that's that's one that. I think the likeliest outcome is he probably disappoints a little bit at a you know late first round, early second round ADP. But if he hits, he's going to be really, really good. And that's the kind of player that you need at least some exposure to when you're talking about a portfolio of you of fantasy baseball. 
We had two big Japanese players come over yeah. to the States this offseason. Masataka Yoshida with the Red Sox and Kodai Senga with the New York Mets. And Neil, you have some pr- predictions on those two. Yeah. Okay. So I know, I know you guys are a little bit down on Yoshida. And, and I did some research on this. And it's interesting. Obviously, there's been a lot of Japanese imports in Major League Baseball. But there's only been a handful, believe it or not, of hitters. And, mm-hmm. and they've been big name, of course, and Matsui and Ichiro and, of course, Otani. But then after those three, it's like Shogo Akiyama and Kazmatsui. There's not a lot after those three. And, and of course, Seiya Suzuki. But there, there aren't a lot of good ones after those three. Well, there's none. There's virtually none. There's right. mostly pitchers. There's hitters you can count on less than two hands, basically. And <laughs> the interesting thing about the hitters is Otani is the only one who's come, you know, under the age of 25, mm-hmm. the age 22, 23. Everybody else has come with basically nine years of pro experience in Japan. So they all come in their late 20s, including Matsui and Ichiro. And when they come, if you look at, for all these guys, their Japanese numbers to the U.S., they all have a detraction in OPS of about 150 to 200 points. Again, including Ichiro and Matsui. And so I'm just saying, like, if if history holds, you should see that similar detraction for Yoshida, which he's a 1,000 OPS guy in Japan last year. He was... 980 the year before that, 966 the year before that. So if at 150 to 200 decline, that's still an 800 to an 850 type OPS player, which would put him in the ranks of what you saw from Tucker and Bichette and Guerrero last season. He's an OPS, I mean, on-base machine, a 440 on-base for the last three years, okay? He's playing again in Fenway Park, and he's going to be batting at the top near the top of the lineup. So he's going at 245, or that's where his ranking is, and I think that's a huge steal uh, where he's going to be a great source of uh, batting average, runs, um, uh, on-base percentage. So I, I'm quite excited about Yoshida, and I think that uh, he's very much underappreciated. So that's my argument on Yoshida. Yeah, a comp I would make would be like the 2021 version of Alex Verdugo, who's a pretty boring fantasy player, doesn't really get anyone excited, doesn't hit for home runs, doesn't steal many bases. That's probably the profile we're likely to see with Yoshida, but could be a good source of batting average, should be on base a lot. And Alex Verdugo was a top 100 player in 2021 in Roto Leagues because he scored 88 runs, he hit 289. I could see a something somewhat similar outcome for for him. And, and you know, Verdugo is someone who... I don't, this might be the very first time we've mentioned Alex Verdugo on this podcast since whenever he, we talked about him last year, but he's being drafted higher than Yoshida. If I'm correct, he's, yeah, 196. Yeah, I'm making a claim that I think Yoshida is going to finish up as a top 20 outfielder. That That's my prediction. I, 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 that's where I'm going with that one on Yoshida. I, I think he'll be really surprised. I could see it more in a head-to-head points league where plate discipline matters so much. You lose points mm-hmm. for strikeouts. Obviously, you gain points for walks. I think in OBP formats, my problem with Yoshida is I just don't know if he's going to do enough power and speed-wise from a roto perspective to be that mm-hmm. top 20 outfielder. And if it does happen, it's probably on the strength of batting average, scoring runs, and the fact that the outfield position just isn't very good. So right, I, I right. Get, I, like that to me is the path to it happening. But Scott, I just I have skepticism on the power and the speed for Yoshida. Well, there is no speed. He's he's not going to steal any bases. Uh, he didn't do much of that in Japan either. So the power was, you know, he, he had a couple. Yeah, he had some twenty-plus homer seasons in Japan. It's obviously not a neat 
um, there's not like a simple formula you can apply to say how that's going to translate to the majors, but like nobody sustains the power that they had in Japan. Understandably, the venues are smaller. The ball is smaller. Uh, it's just a different environment. But I'm not counting on more than like double-digit home runs from Yoshida. So it, it's really like, is he going to be helpful enough in the counting stats? I was a little more excited when it looked like he was going to bat leadoff. Now they're saying probably cleanup is more likely. Um, so that's going to cost him some of those counting stats. Certainly he's not going to be a run-scoring specialist the way he would have been at the top of the lineup. But could he be like a Jeff McNeil sort of batting average specialist or, you know, I've, I've made the, I've made the Alex Verdugo comp before as well. Somewhere in that range is what I'm expecting for Yoshida. Obviously there are more doubts because we haven't seen him actually do it, but that's, that's how I've been approaching him. But you're, do you think there's more power than I'm giving him credit for Neil? No, I, I'm not, I agree with you. I'm not expecting a lot in terms of power. Although I do think the Fenway park situation is a positive, you know, we haven't seen, um, I think that that's a positive for him, uh, the ability to pepper uh, the opposite field there um, and doubles. But I, I look, I my argument is going to be based on his ability to hit over 300. Um, mm-hmm. I do think that lineup is a strong lineup. You know, we talked about Duval, but I, I actually think it's a very deep and strong lineup. Turner ultimately getting back, uh, you know, the shortstop. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Casas, for example, too. I, you know, Devers, of course. I think it's a good lineup. Um, you know, so I do think he'll have an opportunity to still score runs, even if he's batting cleanup and of course, driving in RBIs too. Um, so yeah, I'm not, I'm not counting on more than teens Homer for him, but I think, um, but I think you add it all up. And, and again, he's a guy that right now that, you know, is, he's probably not even in the top 50 outfielders. I mm-hmm. think he's a real value. So that's, that's what I'm excited about. All right, Neil, let's wrap up with uh, some of these quick hitters that you have here. Yeah. You know, we've got a couple of minutes left. Um, yeah. Let's quickly run through some of these. Uh, let me, yeah, quickly. Yeah, thanks. Um, so, look, I think you know, you guys were talking about Wander Franco. I, I totally agree with you. I, I think that he was plagued by injuries last season. I'm expecting a big, big season from Wander Franco. I'm actually expecting a big season from uh, uh, Jonathan India, where, again, he was also plagued by injuries uh, last season. I think Stephen Kwan um, – is going to have a much better season. He's going, I think, 110 right now, and I compare him to Cedric Mullins at 36. I'm expecting Quan to have a season that's around 25 to 30 stolen bases, um, north of 100 runs. If you look at what he did in the second half last season, he had 14 steals. He's obviously a terrific batting average guy, and I think the Cleveland lineup is quite strong, obviously, with the addition of, uh, of uh, the first baseman um, and just uh, overall depth there. I think Andres Jimenez... Um, I actually compare him to Jose Altuve. I know uh, most of you guys uh, maybe don't feel that way, but but his numbers are comparable if you look at you know things like um, uh, exit velocity, hard hit, sprint speed, etc. He's only 23 years old. I look at him making a jump, like similar to what Altuve did from his age 23 to age 24 season. So I'm expecting Jimenez to actually be even better this season, and uh, so I'm expecting uh, strong production there. I think Ahmed Rosario is a 35 to 40 steal guy this series on a contract season. That's his biggest value. And I think obviously he wants to get paid. So I'm, I'm expecting a lot there. I think uh, Corbin Carroll is Mookie Betts 2.0. They're almost identical yeah. in terms of body type, in terms of what they did in the minors and in terms of what they did in the first 100, 200 bats in the major league. So I expect a big, big season from Corbin Carroll. I think Gunnar Henderson's David Wright 2.0, similar uh, identical uh, stats uh, in the minor leagues, identical at the age 21 season, identical body type. 
Um, obviously a top prospect. I think Gunnar Henderson could have a David Wright type age 22 season, which was 27 homers, uh, 17 stolen bases. So I think a lot of value there. And then I think um, a couple of values on the pitching side, I think uh, Justin Steele, if you look at his second half last season, 36 innings, sub one ERA, 11 and a half strikeouts per nine innings. I think he's getting very little credit. Uh, he's I think, going 374. Uh, he's, they added, um, obviously, Bellinger and, uh, and the uh, shortstop. So I think their defense will be better uh, in Chicago to help him. And, um, you know, real deep sleeper is Kyle Bradish, who is going, I think, almost 800. So not even being drafted in the last seven starts of last season. He had 23 scoreless innings versus the Houston Astros and the uh, Cleveland Guardians. So I think he's a guy with a much better team going back to Gunnar Henderson and, and uh, Rushman, for example that I think is a real value. So these are just some quick hits I wanted to throw out there. And sorry, one more is Kode Senga. I think he is Masahiro Tanaka. If you look at his stats in Japan, they're almost identical to Tanaka. He's playing for the match. Good lineup, good bullpen, uh, number three or number four pitcher. So easier matchup. So I expect uh, Kode Senga to have a very nice uh, Tanaka-like season, the Tanaka's first season of the Yankees. So I'm, I'm expecting a lot from Senga as well. I think as long as Kodai Singa could throw strikes, I mean, that with that fastball, 96-97, the ghost fork, we know that uh, when Tanaka was great uh, for fantasy, it was a lot of that splitter usage. So, you know, pretty right. similar pitchers there. Uh, Ahmed Rosario, 30 to 40 steals. I love to hear it. I, I don't know if Scott could say the same thing. So we know <laughs> no, Scott. No, I mean, I've, I've had that. Uh, he's so fast. He always seems like he... Uh, un- for his whole career, it seemed like he underperformed as a base dealer. And so, he, you know, you're right. And I looked this up as a Met. He led the league twice and or maybe once, but maybe twice and caught stealing. He was not a good base dealer at the Mets. He had to learn that. But with the Guardians, he's it's been very efficient for 35. So he's gotten yeah. better as the Guardian. And again, he's got to get paid. And that is well, the only card is going to be steals. And as we've talked about, it's a lot easier to steal bases. Exactly. It's, it's, exactly. The, the, the league wide percentage of success is going to go up and Rosario should benefit from that. All right. Well, Neil, it was a pleasure having you on the podcast here, your expertise, your years of experience playing fantasy (laughs) baseball. And of course, we really do appreciate your, uh, your contribution and your donation to St. Jude. So thanks again, man. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Pleasure to meet you all, and thanks for having me, and appreciate the time. We enjoyed it. Yeah, great job from Neil there. We're going to wrap there for Scott, Chris, and Neil Shaw. I am Frank. Thank you all for listening and watching Fantasy Baseball today. We'll be back again tomorrow. Bye-bye. On May 23rd... I want to go back to normal. What's normal? The Paramount Plus original series, Evil Returns. We've already hunted werewolves and demons. And now what? A baby antichrist? Okie dokie. Prepare yourself. You will not beat us. For the end. I have visions of hell. Make it stop. Make it shut up. You're not gonna survive this. Evil. The final season. Streaming May 23rd. Only on Paramount Plus.